Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear John Nunziata talk about life as an independent member of parliament. We have two of them. We're going to be running, as you know, in October. Also, Trish Newport will join us from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where Ebola is a growing threat. She is with Doctors Without Borders. The 75th D-Day anniversary from London Canadian war historian, military historian Ted Barris, and Adrian Sutherland will be with us from Attawapiskat. He's the leader of Midnight Shine, a very successful First Nations band, but he's going to talk to us about how in Attawapiskat they're living in third world conditions. And Scott Newark on Not Criminally Responsible and a Canadian halfway house, or really Canadian halfway houses, that refused to take an individual who was being released by Correctional Service Canada. Some of what's on the podcast this time. Jody Wilson-Raybolt in Vancouver, Granville. Jane Philpott also running as an independent in Stouffville-Markham. Markham-Stouffville in uh, the Toronto area. The two former senior cabinet ministers in Justin Trudeau's government, as you all know, now they're, uh, they're committed to run as independents. So what are their chances? What are the odds? Will voters decide that uh, they're sufficiently impressed with both of the former cabinet ministers that they'll vote for them regardless of the positions they may or may not take? And what is the opportunity for an independent MP to really make a significant impact in Ottawa in the, in the federal parliament? Because you know, if Trudeau's re-elected, if the Liberals are re-elected, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Rebold are not going to get a lot of attention. They may not get a lot of attention the other way either. Now, in 1993, Jean Chrétien's Liberals won with a massive majority, the former majority government. Here's a lesson for Justin Trudeau. The former majority government leading up to 1993, was that of Brian Mulroney, progressive conservative. They went from a majority government with Kim Campbell as the caretaker prime minister. They were decimated. They ended up with a caucus of two, like the Green Party now. And the liberals had this massive majority. And Mr. Chrétien went across the country and he said his cornerstone promise was to uh, scrap the GST. In fact, he was sitting about three feet away from where I am right now. Underscoring that time and again in a one-hour interview that we had with him and Sheila Copps at the time, oh, the GST is gone. And then, of course, it wasn't. Because when they got in power, they said, oh, we found all these issues, all these problems, all this stuff that was left behind by Mulroney and Campbell, and we can't do it without the GST's money. So John Nunziata, who uh, was a longtime liberal MP and almost a rebel, 
member of the Rat Pack. That's what they were called. And uh, the MP for York Southwestern in uh, Toronto, Toronto area. John was in the studio with me. I was doing the show at that time out of Toronto. And uh, John was in the studio with me. And he said, I will not vote with my party on the budget bill because we have broken a fundamental promise to Canadians to scrap the GST. And I cannot do that. I will not support this party. And he did not. And he was thrown out on his ear by Mr. Chrétien and the Liberals. Fast, that was in 1996. You can correct me on all of this in just a second. But a year later, there's the federal election rolls around, and Chrétien winds up going from a massive majority to one with only four a four-seat majority. And he had to fight like the blazes to win his seat in Chewinigan. And they did everything they could, including throwing the kitchen sink in the direction of John Nunziata, the liberals did, to make sure he didn't get reelected as an independent. And he did. Not only did he get elected, he absolutely decimated the field. The liberal candidate, Judy Scro, who was a councillor at the time in Toronto, and is a longtime MP now, she was some 4,600 votes behind Mr. Nunziata, who joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I, I knew you were going to win that one. You did, too. How are, right. how, confident. how are you, John? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm doing... i here on the Raptors. Well, it, exactly. You know, I mean, we're going to talk about the Raptors a little later on. Uh, everybody in this country is, is talking Raptors. Even people who didn't know anything about the playoffs or basketball are quoting stats now. You know, mm-hmm. player stats. But l- let me ask you this. Let me start out with this question for you. You know what it's like to be an independent member of parliament. Would you have advised, if Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott had asked you, John Nunziata, based on your experience, whether they should run as independent candidates, what would you have said to them? Absolutely, yes. And as a matter of fact, I encouraged them through Twitter to do so, because uh, to be independent, Roy, is to be free. To be independent, Roy, is to be in a true democracy, as opposed to what's happening in Ottawa today and what happened back when I was there. We don't live in a true democracy. It's a, a virtual dictatorship. As a matter of fact, in that election in 1993, Jean Chrétien uh, had 38% of the vote. That means that 62% of those voted voted against him and the Liberal Party, yet he was given 100% of the power to do whatever he pleased. And one of the ways that... Uh, a majority government controls, and actually the control comes out of the PMO, is they declare every bill to be a vote of confidence. Well, yeah, and uh, and, and that certainly keeps people in line, doesn't it? Well, yeah, they Most have people. an individual called a whip yeah. to make sure that you toe the party line. Yeah. So in reality, elected MPs that belong to political parties are nothing but trained seals told what to do, even though uh, their votes might be contrary to the wishes of their constituents. So, so John, let's just assume for argument's sake that, and I, I have a feeling they're going to win. I have a feeling that both uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott are going to win their, their writings. I don't know, just a gut feeling. But let's say they do. What kind of influence will they have on Parliament and a Parliament and a political system that is built on the premise that the party is all-powerful? Well, there's 
two situations. If it is a close election and uh, it's a minority government situation, believe it or not, the two of them could hold the balance of power and determine what's the future of our country. In fact, if there were a number of other independents elected, then we would be back into a true democracy situation. Now, if there is a majority government, as there was in 1997, um, I was able to uh, use my influence as a, an independent member of parliament because, on occasion, uh, the, the House of Commons needs unanimous support in order to amend the uh, procedural order or to do certain things, uh, adjourn early or extend the sitting and whatnot. And so I made a deal with them. I said, if you allow me to ask at least two questions a week uh, to sit on uh, the committees I want to sit on and to speak to every bill that's introduced in the House of Commons, I will give you unanimous consent. And that's what happened. So I was able to, I think, have influence in that regard and to truly speak on behalf of my constituents as opposed to uh, just doing what I was told by the PMO. Okay, because the concern is, and I'm glad you've explained what, what you did. I don't know if, if, and I agree with you, there should be. Uh, Scott Newark, our mutual friend, and I have often said there should be maybe two dozen independent MPs in every parliament. And that would really change things and, and get things done for, I think, pragmatically for the benefit of people in this country. But if if you don't make that kind of arrangement, if you don't have the clout or the experience or the, or the uh, I don't know, the uh, desire um then then what are you are you are you essentially relegated to the gulag and your former colleagues who are angry with you won't have anything to do with you uh not necessarily believe it or not uh when i was an independent i had friends all of a sudden on all sides of uh, the house of commons but um both jane and jody uh can have significant influence not they don't necessarily have to if elected as independents they don't necessarily have to sit as independents let's it depends on the scenario again if it's a, a minority government situation let's say the green party will hold the balance of power they might decide to join the green party or the liberals might invite them back uh, so they could have uh, quite a bit of influence but i'm my concern is that moving forward in our country, we need significant electoral reform to render our country a true democracy. And I have a few ideas in that regard. One is to prohibit political parties from insisting that their MPs toe the party line. In other words, every vote in the House of Commons should be a free vote. That would allow MPs to truly represent their constituents. And if political leaders cannot influence their own caucus members to vote in a particular way, then that's their problem. Yeah, I like that. I uh, had an exclusive interview with Brian Mulroney just before he left as prime minister, and we sort of made it impossible for him to say no. Uh, it was a set of circumstances that I engineered in order to make it impossible for the prime minister to say no. So I had the one-hour exclusive interview. And one of the questions early on in the interview, John, I said to him, look, I talk to people on the air every day, and politics was a huge issue as it is again now. 
And constituents call and they complain and they say, look, my member of parliament can't do really anything that we want them to do at the constituency level because the MP is really beholden to the party leader, in this case, the prime minister. So you call the shots and your MP at the constituency level really has no power, no, no, no input. And Mulroney looked at me and he I could just see him getting angry. And he said, and this made it, this, this, this quote kind of made it across the country, he was tired of the bitchers and the complainers. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him and he looked at me and I thought, well, we've got a quote for the ages, but it was, it, it was, it was so true and it still is. What, what do you think the voters are going to do? Do you think that we're so, so comfortable with the idea of voting party that even with somebody as highly profiled as Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, and given their presence and their decisions and their declarations post-SNC-Lavalin, PMO, um, mess, do you think people will still be comfortable, more comfortable voting party? Roy, let's talk about the electorate for a moment. Uh, it's clear to me that the electorate is disengaged when it comes to politics in Canada. Let's look at the last federal election. Uh, 61% of those eligible to vote voted. So that means about 39%, over a third, did not vote. Uh, Mr. Trudeau received 39% of the vote. Uh, so that means 61% of those who voted didn't vote for him. We can, we, can actually, we can actually adjust that, John. He got 27% of the total okay. available vote. Well, of the total available vote, exactly. So that means, um, you know, he doesn't have a legitimate mandate to govern in this country if we're living in a true democracy, and hence the need to get rid of the party system in Canada. Roy, I um, often in my business, uh, in my law business, I, I, uh, I do government relations work, I ask people in organizations, I run a little test. I say, tell me who your MP is, your MPP, your city councillor, and your school trustee. The vast majority, over 90 to 95 percent of people, can't name their elected representative. Uh -huh. So what does that tell you? And then I ask them, when was the last time you communicated with your member of parliament? And very few people actually communicate. So that's the reality out there, is that... Uh, People don't know who their MP is, and if you vote on party lines, uh, remember that election where Jack Layton uh, was running as leader of the NDP? You had four NDP candidates who were students at McGill got elected, and uh, one other waitress, I believe, who had never stepped foot in that Quebec riding. What does that tell you? It tells you that uh, people really, they're voting party, but they're not really voting for a representative um, for them. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and what happens is you get, uh, when you do have a, a vast majority, you get unqualified people uh, to be uh, MPs. And so I believe even today in the party system, in the next election, people should not vote along party lines. They should analyze each of the candidates and vote for the best candidate. And if you vote for the best candidate and the best candidate is elected in every riding, guess what? You're going to have the best government and have a free vote in the House of Commons to decide who the prime minister is going to be. Okay. John, always good talking to you. Thank you so very much. Uh, you added a lot You're to welcome. Parliament. And you were, the, you were the honorable one who stood up and said, you lied to us 
I'm not voting for you. I'm not going along with you, even though I'm a member of your party. Thanks, John. Thank you, Roy. All the best. Go Raptors, go. You got it. John Nunziata, now a lawyer in Toronto. The story of Ebola, the Ebola crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and uh, world's media largely mum on this. Quarantine and medical facilities are being attacked. One doctor has been killed. Some of the facilities are now being closed because of the violence toward them. So what exactly is going on and how concerned should the global community be? Trish Newport is with us from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders Canada. She's a nurse from the Yukon and the MSF coordinator for the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where she joins us, from where she joins us. Ms. Newport, thank you very much for the time. And how serious is this 2019 outbreak compared to earlier versions of Ebola? This is a really really critical situation right now, and it's a really concerning time in the outbreak. Though we're 10 months into the outbreak, we don't see the situation really getting any. Almost 2,000 confirmed cases. There's over 1,300 deaths, um, but it's not just the numbers. It's what's really happening in the community. So all the new cases every week, we see that half of them are actually people dying in the community. And that's really serious because with Ebola, the longer that someone is sick in the community, the longer the chance is that other people will get infected. And when people are dying in the community, it means they've been there for quite a while, and there's been the chance that a lot of other people could have been infected. Um, so, so that in itself is really concerning. Is this more, this particular aspect of the, of the situation, the current situation, is it more concerning, more troublesome than, than in 2015 or 17? It's a different situation. You know, this is the first time that an Ebola outbreak has happened in a conflict zone. So North Kivu and Uchuri, the, the provinces where the outbreak is happening, are areas that have had long histories of conflict, and the conflict is, is ongoing. So there's active conflict there, um, which makes for really chal- a lot of challenges in accessing the community. But there's also many layers of dis- distrust. And so that community engagement and really involving the community in the response has been a challenge. And it was a challenge right from the beginning. And so because of that, there was a lot of tension between the communities and the people trying to respond to the Ebola outbreak. So that, I mean, that complicates a lot of things. The thing is, now we have experimental vaccines to use. We have experimental treatments. All of those have so much potential that it seems that the vaccine is really great. But the problem is all of those tools, you can't use them if you don't have the trust of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the basis, right? You need to have a strong surveillance system and you need to have a, a community that's informed about what Ebola is. But more than that, you need to be going to them and saying, how, do you, how should the Ebola response be managed in your community? Where do you want treatment facilities? Um, but that, that wasn't done at the beginning. And that's from the very start, it really caused a lot of problems. Okay. And if we have this correctly, if I remember correctly, Ebola claims about, was it 90% of the lives of the people who contracted? So at the beginning of an outbreak, before you have treatment centers or isolation, it can, it can kill about 90% of the people that are affected by it. 
right now for the entire outbreak, it's about there are about 65% of the people that are getting sick or have died. So there have been over 1,900 cases and over 1,300 people have died. So that's, that's a really high percentage. And it's so sad because the treatments that we have now could help save their lives if people came to the treatment facilities early. But a lot of people are dying in the community. Either it's because they don't trust the Ebola response and they don't want to go to the treatment facilities. Sometimes it's because the treatment facilities are too far away. Lots of people, lots of those community deaths are happening in regular hospitals and healthcare facilities and because the people working there didn't identify them as Ebola cases. All right, let me ask and you this. this. Is so tragic. Without the Ebola yeah. medical response being trusted by the population in the country, in the region, what is the risk of it spreading far beyond the Democratic Republic uh, of, the, of the Congo? So there's always the risk. You know, outbreaks are unpredictable. Um, but at this moment, the problem in the outbreak is there's very little visibility of the outbreak because in Ebola, when you have a confirmed case, you make a list of every person that was in close contact with that case and you follow all of those people for 21 days so you check on them every day to see if they're getting sick. So all of your new cases should just come from that, that list of contacts, right? Right now, about 32% of the new cases are, coming, are, are known contacts of confirmed cases. Everyone else is not was not a was not a contact. So it means they were not being followed. Okay. What that really means is we don't have a good visibility of the actual outbreak. So it means people that are at risk are moving around, and there's no way of controlling that. Yeah. So for sure, there's the risk right now that it could move to other provinces or that it could move to other countries. All right. Because uh, Kivu and Detroit are right on the border. Yeah. Ms. Ms. Newport, thank you so much for the time. I hope you don't mind if we ask you to come back. Yes, I would be happy to. Okay. Thank you so much thank for the time. For, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you. Trish Newport from uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières Canada. You just uh, go on a search engine, you'll find them immediately. It's a, it's a, it's a very concerning, very concerning situation. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So we're just days from the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I, I'm not going to be on the air on D-Day, so I still wanted to do something about that particular massively important date in our history. The Allied landings on Normandy beaches did mark the beginning of the end for the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler, but taking control of the beaches and pushing back the German military was not a sure thing going in. And uh, I'm going to speak now with Ted Barris, who joins us from London in the UK. Uh, Ted is a Canadian writer, journalist, educator, author, war historian. His books include The Dam Busters, Canadian Airmen, and The Secret Raid Against Nazi Germany, and The Great Escape, A Canadian Story. 
Ted, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time. Are you in England for the 75th anniversary of D-Day? I am indeed. I'm. I'm, and I'm. I'm moved by your words, Roy, and your and your friend. Um, I'm. I'm in a somewhat contradictory atmosphere. I'm. I'm at the doorway of a pub called the Goat Tavern on Kensington High Street, and I'm with a large number of Canadians. I'm leading them on a tour which will take us from London in a few days to Portsmouth, which of course was one of the gateways for the Operation Overlord crossing of the English Channel to put 15,000 Canadians on the beach at Juneau just four or five days from now, 75 years ago. So the atmosphere is somewhat celebratory, but very much somber, like your your guest a moment ago and your attitude to this. Everyone's taking that extraordinary, precarious atmosphere of England 75 years ago to heart. You know, I wish we did this every year. I wish we did it more than just annually. I wish we understood just what was sacrificed for us and how blessed we are to have benefited and continue to benefit from what was done for us by that generation. It's so true. With us, among the 50 people on my tour, fortunately, is an Air Force veteran who flew on June the 5th, the night of the the eve of the D-Day operation. His name is Bill Novick. He's a still-practicing ophthalmologist from Montreal. He is 96, and he's as sharp as you or I, Roy. And he, we sat over a beer the other day as we contemplated the anniversary, and he reminded me that 75 years ago, his commanders at 433 Squadron they were Halifax bombers, told him that in the coming days, literally on the eve of of D-Day, and they didn't know that that was happening. They just knew that all operations were particularly sensitive and critical, that they had to be particularly careful that their targets and their objectives were achieved. And so on the 5th of June, after a postponement of 24 hours of D-Day from June 5th to 6th, they're told on the 5th, your operations tonight are critical, and he's given a target of the bridge over the Caen Canal. Now, to understand the importance of that bridge, it's kind of on the eastern edge of what would be the inland attack, ultimately, of Allied troops later that night and early into the morning, so that troops will come ashore in landing craft and up onto um, Gold, Juno, and Sword Beach, the two British and one Canadian beaches, but they had to be protected by a prevention of allowing counterattack by the Germans, and that meant blowing these bridges. And so Bill went out on that night with his Halifax crew, and they went in on a very low-level pass at the bridge. They didn't have the coordinates correctly. They were being shot at. They went around to do it again and did it a third time. And on the third pass, they dropped their bomb load and hit the bridge. So 60 years later, when Bill and I met 15 years ago, we're crossing over the very same bridge at Caen, and he's smiling. And I'm saying, Bill, why are you smiling? He said, because a few days ago there was a story in Time magazine quoting a Panzer Division commander, German commander, who was frustrated when he reflected on the D-Day operations and the impact on the Germans, that he couldn't get into the battle because the bridge over the Caen Canal had been blown, and that's why Bill was so pleased with himself. What a great story. 
What a and, great and story. He was just, I mean, it was like it's, it's, it's bittersweet. Yes, of The course. reality of the, of the loss of, of the D-Day, uh, nearly 1,000 Canadian casualties on the first day. But the reality that this was the foothold that was required to restore peace and security and freedom in, in northwestern Europe. You know, Ted, in, in all of the tragedy and all of the, the fighting and all of the, uh, all of the, challenge, the challenges that they, that they faced, there were still some amazing stories. And the veterans tell do such a tremendous job of, of sharing the stories. If, if, if you just sit down with the ones who are still with us and, and give them the opportunity and listen... You'll learn it. You'll learn so much, and you'll come. You'll come away with such incredible respect. As you're talking, I'm doing a little math here. I, I I don't know how close I am because my math skills are legendarily poor. But he would have been about 21 years of age at that time. Yeah, yeah. He, 22, maybe. We and, and that's and when I speak to audiences uh, who are in their teens, students at uh, high schools and universities, I remind them that when they go to commemorations on Remembrance Day on November 11th. They see older women and men who are teetering and gray and feeble, the last of the Second World War veterans. I said, don't think of what I'm about to tell you, the stories of D-Day and the Second World War uh, roles that Canadians play. Don't think of those old people frail and teetering at Remembrance Day. Think of your older brothers and sisters or yourselves making life and death decisions that made a difference on one day and changed the direction of history. They didn't know that would happen, but suddenly then when the young people I'm speaking to see themselves reflected in the pictures of Bill Novick and other veterans when they were 20 and 22 years old, they get it. They understand that this isn't somebody else's story. It could be theirs. Ted, is, is Mr. Novak with you right now? Pardon me? Is Dr. Novak with you right now? No, he's um, he's being feted tonight by friends and family. He has brought with him his wife, Vida, who uh, they've been married for, I don't know, 60-some years. Um, they have brought his son from Calgary, who's a, a doctor, and his wife, uh, Richard Novick, and their grandsons are here. And so they're off celebrating fetting dad and granddad for the job he did 75 years ago. Well, please let him know that all of us at home after hearing your story of him, just want to recognize him and thank him for what he's done for all of us. I will do that. Let me ask you, let me just ask you one more thing and then cover one more issue here. Your books are so great. Your books take us inside and it's the Canadian perspective. D-Day was no sure thing, was it? Very good point. We look at history in hindsight. We look at history as the victors, not the vanquished. We look at history because it's been gone over like uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. On the night of the 5th when Bill flew, on the night of the 5th when 15,000 Canadians left the shores of South England across the Channel, through channels that had been swept clear by the Royal Canadian Navy, none of them, not one of them, sensed that this was a sure thing. Not one of them sensed that they would be alive tomorrow. In fact, most of the naval crews had been told the casualties could be as high as 60%. And yet, crossing the channel, sweeping the channel that the Royal Canadian Navy did, not one ship was sunk on that morning. All the ships, 7,000 of them, got through the channel to the five beaches, thanks in part to the Royal Canadian Navy. We just have no sense of that peril that faced them, the uncertainty 
that they had to face, and somehow they swallowed it. They recognized uh, their youth, their strengths, their training, their commanders, uh, just their fictitiveness that was very Canadian, and they pulled it off. The Canadians got farther in land than any of the three Allied forces did that, that morning. Ted, thank you so much uh, for joining us from England. Uh, your books are, are really spectacular. The Dam Busters, Canadian Airmen, and the Secret Raid Against Nazi Germany, and The Great Escape, a Canadian story. Um, and please, please do thank uh, Dr. Novak for all of us. I promise I will personally to do that, and, and, uh, and I'll note that, uh, that uh, Canadians certainly respect the veterans you've spoken to and, and your reverence for them. I'm sure Bill will understand completely. Thank you so much. Yeah, my dad was a Dunkirk veteran, so, you know, there's... Oh. <laughs> he would have had a story to tell. He, well, he was captured, and, and then he got away, and I, he died when I was quite young. But I remember him. I remember asking him about escaping from the Wehrmacht, the German soldiers, and he said, we didn't like it, so we left. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the understatement of the day. I guess my, so. My dad was... My dad was a, a medic in the American Army, and I've got a book coming out in the fall that gives Canadians and others the stories of military medical personnel wow. from the Civil War to the war in Afghanistan, but partly through the eyes of those medics and medical personnel in the Second World War, like my dad, yeah. who took a step further in the, in the attempt to save lives, not take them. Wonderful. Ted, thank you for the time. All the best thank to you. Thank you, Roy. Best of the day. Ted Barris, let's listen to my friend... Ed Mahoney reminiscing about being on Juno Beach on D-Day. The aircraft in the sky, we had 4,000, they, they say there were approximately 4,000 aircraft supporting us. They were attacking everything, including us. But uh, then going into the beach, uh, it was something that uh, I wouldn't like to go through again. I was one of the fortunate ones. But uh, we made it, thank God. There was a lot that didn't, but that's that's part of war. Eh? We did it uh, with our hearts, and uh, I would do it again. I happen to hear Adrian Sutherland in the band with Heart of Gold about, I don't know, about eight, eight months or so ago, and I started to listen to the music, and... Yeah, I mean, I just a huge fan, and uh, Adrian's been on this program. We talked about the band and the music and how he developed his own style and his own career while living in Attawapiskat, uh, which is also in the news in this country on a regular basis because of the living conditions that the First Nations people have to endure there, and uh, Adrian's still a resident of the community, doesn't plan to leave, and he's back with us on the program. Good to talk to you, my friend. Hi. It's good to be back, Roy. What a great song. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, what's the uh, what's the what's the story behind the song? Well, I think uh, when I when I look back and think about what was going through my mind and what I was feeling at the time, I think it really is really about being resilient and being strong and and not losing hope, no matter how hard life can get. Um, as you as you know, life can uh, can throw uh, a whole bunch of stuff at anyone. And it's really just about just continuing to get back up and, and, and moving ahead and, and hoping for the best. You know, it's, uh, it's such an important message because people need to do that. When, when you're down, 
the only way you're going to get things back in gear and improve things is by getting back up and and uh, and that the song does such a great job of of telling that story and 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 you and everybody in Atahualpiscat is living that particular that particular life. Can I just ask you to for the people who are listeners who weren't with us the first time? When, when you, and I, you and I spoke, remind us how this all began, how the music situation, how the music career began for you. You're a young kid living in Attawapiskat. There are issues there. We know that there are great concerns about the young people in the community. There's the suicide concerns. There's the housing issues. There are all sorts of issues in the, in the, in the community. How did it start for you? Remind us. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, definitely a lot to contend with. Um, well, I know for as long as I can remember, I've been around music. My mom played, and from a young, from the as soon as I could remember or have a, any kind of recollection, um, I do recall my mom playing guitar and also playing the organ. And of course, a lot of my relatives, the the men, the older men in my family, were also very musical. So I've always been around it. And of course, whatever hands I can, whatever cassette cassette tapes I could get my hands on. Growing up here, I would just basically listen to, and and uh, as I got into playing guitar into my teens, I um, you know picked apart by ear uh, um, every chord and uh, and note about whatever song I get my hand on. So uh, yeah, but you know I grew up a very simple life, um, like most First Nations people in the remote far north. We uh, we were mostly hunter gatherer. Uh, um, people up here and still today uh, a lot of families spend, spend a lot of their energy out on the land and living a life of su- um, subsistence and uh, you know I think it wasn't until the late 90s uh, that we actually got some running water here in the community so it's uh, it's fairly uh, fairly recent and uh, even with in terms of um, uh, communications and internet and all that sort of thing uh, you would think because we're in we're in uh, a first world country that uh, these ex- these types of conditions uh, don't exist, but unfortunately they do. I want to talk to you about that? I, you just you just said that running water is fairly recent. Yeah, well, in in the late nineties, uh, that's I remember I mean, we got connected anyway, so that's that's fairly just just to hear that, that long ago. Yeah, just to hear that is so utterly disturbing. That in this country, with all of the riches and the, and all the resources, and the good life that people live, that you can say to me, and 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 this is what happened in your community, and it happens in First Nations communities in the north on a regular basis. Running water's fairly new reality. It's it's mind numbing. Never mind mind boggling. It's mind numbing. Um, let's talk about your community. We'll come back to the music in a, in a couple of minutes, and I want to talk to you about the success that you're experiencing and more and more as people become more and more aware of Midnight Shine, and it's, it's midnightshineonline.com uh, is, is the website, and the song, the new song is, is Leather Skin. Um, you've, I gather that you feel compelled to talk about what life is like, what the conditions are, what the issues are in Atahualpiskat. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm, um, maybe I have an obligation to speak out about it more and more, especially in the last probably year or two. Um, I mean, I've been taught not to complain about things and just to be happy with what I have. Um, but sometimes I, you know, it just can it can wear you down and you can get frustrated. Um, 
especially when you feel like you, you've been forgotten or you know not a lot of people are aware or perhaps some of you don't care and I mean there's all sorts of all, all sorts of thoughts that kind of creep into your mind like that um, but I mean yeah for sure I mean I feel like as an artist I have you know, I have a voice and I feel like I should use it to, to speak up about some of these issues. What are the issues that we really need to know about? I mean, the Prime Minister was promised he was going to go three years ago. He hasn't made it yet. I guess he has a more direct line to Paris than he does to Atahuapiscat. But uh, what are the issues that are really confronting the community and the kids of the community who are the future of the community? Well, personally, I guess I could, I mean, I don't speak for uh, the, the entire community, but as, as from my own experience and from my own observations, I think we've, um, we definitely struggle. We don't have a, we don't have a lot of capacity to tackle some of these, some of these social challenges that we're faced with now. And I think uh, um, it certainly doesn't help when, when, the, you know, governments are not, Adequately, fund, adequately funding certain programs or housing needs in, 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 in the north, it actually exacerbates the problem. So, I think, um, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of change that has to be made. I think not only on on the on the government side of of things, but also in at the local level here in the community. I think we need to really put aside a lot of a lot of our own. Uh, um, I guess a lot of our own gar- uh, garbage that we carry, and uh, I think I feel like a lot of us are really just trying to get by and worrying worrying about our own. And I think we need to be trying to look at working together more and coming together and really, really trying to solve these issues at a local level and look at putting in some sort of plan that deals with, you know, whether it's poverty, whether it's. Um, the suicide crisis that we experienced, um, and I think we're still um, kind of it's still running its course right now. And uh, to what extent, I'm not really sure exactly. We have uh, drugs, um, we have addictions in the community right now, which are more rampant, rampant than ever, and, and which then becomes an issue of people that are withdrawing from addictions now are going into homes and breaking in to steal. Um, so it's just, you know, it seems to be yeah. problem after problem after problem. I, I read a line where you said, um, talking about housing in, in Arawapiskat, about the houses, where you said, I would describe them, the houses, as basically cardboard boxes put on a big pile of mud. That's how I would describe my own house, anyway. Personally, wow. um, uh, and there are others others that live in similar conditions. Uh, there were there were houses that the government brought in back in the seventies, late sixties, um, that don't even meet basic uh, building standard requirements, building specs. So, I mean, they're they're drafty in the winter. So when you reach reaching uh, you know wind chill factors in minus fifties. Um, a wood stove doesn't even make a difference uh, when you have it blazing. Um, you continue to stoke it every day, I mean, all day long and all night long uh, throughout the winter. So, I mean, yeah, some families are still uh, are living in those those types of conditions. And my family and I are, are, are living in a, an old house from the early 70s. So, I mean... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, and we're you know we're trying hard to improve our conditions. Yeah. So when you when you leave Ottawa, and you go out and 
uh, like you go to a film festival, you're you're celebrated musician. Your band is doing uh, you know increasingly well. You see how well, what's what's available and what's possible must be absolutely uh, um, well beyond frustrating and. And and what what's I mean? Is the water situation is the water drinkable without uh, without boiling it, or do you still have water boil advisories, or how's that going? Um, from time to time, they still have water uh, boil advisories in the community, but we don't drink the water from the faucets. We we all share a water dispensary. Um, there's two located in the community, so all. 2,700 residents share uh, two water dispensaries for drinking. What do you need most? Well, personally, uh, I need to to build a new house for my family. That's that's probably my biggest need. Um, we don't feel safe. We don't feel secure. Um, we definitely don't feel rested in this house. So some of our very basic human needs uh, are not even being met. So. And if I were to go and talk to any number of people in Ottawa-Piscot and I said, what do you need most, would I get the same answer? Yeah, I think so. There's still a lot of issues around overcrowding. Um, when they brought in the last um, housing project, uh, they were getting people out of the shacks, you know, because there were people living in shacks, right, entire, throughout, like families living in sheds, literally, um, with no power, no running water or anything. And they uh, dealt with that, uh, some of those families, and they got into some of the new houses, and then the overcrowded homes then spilled into the sheds again. So it's just like, a, you know what I mean? It's just a, a cycle. Uh, and you're talking about minus 50 degree weather in the wintertime. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. I mean, it gets really cold up here. We're, yeah. we're in the subarctic yeah. uh, region here. It's just, we're in the far north, so it does get really cold. Sometimes I, you know, is is it, does the dream help you get, I mean, living the dream or trying to get to the dream helps you get through the rough spots in life, huh? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm chasing this dream, and, and uh, I know, uh, I think, look, if someone were to be looking in from the outside, it may appear all glamorous, but, <laughs> you know, I'm working hard. I'm I'm working as hard as I can, uh, trying to juggle everything, and and um, I'm, I'm doing my best to certainly, uh, um, you know, continue to build what I've started with, with the music and trying to improve my life, and now, of course, speaking out. Uh, about some of the social issues here, particularly in the far north. Well, you know, you're you're a voice that people will listen to because of sometimes it's because of the music uh, that'll get people started listening. But then when they hear you, that also makes an impression because you know, I talk to a lot of people and I what I hear in my headset I can tell when people are telling me the truth, and I can really easily tell when people are stringing me a line. Mm-hmm. It's you know I've been doing this for a long time and I I can tell the truth from the fiction. And, and you're, you're a truth teller, and uh, that's, that's why I admire you. I admire what you've accomplished, and I know you're speaking out for your community. And the, and the kids, uh, may I ask you uh, to just, just tell me quickly, um, is there still a great concern about, about the well-being of the kids in Ottawa-Piscata, if they're, they're making it? Um, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm, I feel concerned, and, and I look at some of the families and the struggling that they're going through. Um, we, you know, there are people making efforts and making strides to improve. We've seen the youth center come in, the temporary youth center, and, and thank God for that. Uh, there's programming now for them. We're looking at a permanent 
construction of a permanent youth centre now within the next two years that's happening. I think the, there's going to be a shovel hits the, the ground, I believe, this summer. So there is some positive move. Um, we're moving in the right direction in terms Good. of, you know, uh, delivering services and try to support some of the, our young people. Right. When people say to you, and I'm sure they do, why don't you move? What do you say? Well, I think about it a lot, actually, you know, especially lately, you know, when you feel you start to feel defeated and you're ready to sort of give up and, 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 you know, when you feel like you really don't have any other choice but to get up and uproot your family and leave. Um, but it's, it's not that easy. We're, we're deep rooted. Um, I grew up here on, on the land and I want to raise my family, uh, the Cree way. And I think in order for me to do that, I need to be here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's always an honor for me to speak with you. Um, because you've accomplished a great deal personally and you've done this personal perseverance and you take very seriously your community around you, the people around you. And and we live in a society where too often people will communicate only with their mobile phones with their car windows shut and they don't make face to, you know, eye-to-eye contact. It's all done by electronic devices. You're in the community and you're speaking for people in your community and want the best for your community. Your uh, your, your music is great, um, Adrian. The band is uh, is on its way, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I I'm 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 it's an honor to speak with you. I, I really really admire you. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that, and I'm I, I know I enjoy uh, speaking out about these issues, and I really enjoyed our last conversation. So. Um, was happy to learn that we'd be we'd have a chance to talk again. Yeah, well, we'll have you back for sure, and keep on turning out that great music. And it's uh, it's midnightshineonline.com, and people can book the band too, right? Yes, you can book us. It'll all be right. great, <laughs> and it'll be a hell of a concert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Adrian. All the best to you. Thanks very much for having me. Take care. Bye, Adrian Sutherland, and uh, again, the band is Midnight Shine. Online.com. They're accomplishing a great deal. The issue of um, not criminally responsible, not criminally responsible. There's another case uh, underway now. Darcy Clark, who was the wife of, uh, was the wife of Alan Schoenborn, who killed their three children. Darcy Clark, very sadly, passed away the day before yesterday. And um, our condolences to the family and just, uh, this is only so much grief and the pain. I'm, I'm not supposing anything here, but just generally, there's only so much grief and pain people can absorb in a lifetime. Scott Newark is with us, former Alberta prosecutor who is also the executive director of the Canadian Police Association and is an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Uh, you know, you hear Carol Dedelli's voice, and you you know her, and, and then I... I I hear about Darcy Clark passing away. You feel personal pain when you when you when you when you know this, Scott, because you get to know the people and you or their families, and you get to know what they're what they've experienced and what the systems put them through. Yeah, and the uh, the frustration that people encounter when they realize that the system is not performing in the way that. Uh, they expect, and I think you know, virtually all Canadians would expect it to, which is putting public interest and uh, public safety first. And that's what's so so shocking, uh, I think, to so many people. But it, especially, and it's true about repeat offenders as well too, and our you know revolving door justice system. 
but in particular on these not criminally responsible, uh, in my day we used to call it insane, uh, in some ways I suppose it still is, uh, the way the, uh, the system is operating. And I mean, just as you put in your intro, can you imagine the horrific crime that this guy committed, but oh yeah, it's okay, he can change his name? He changes his name and he can travel anywhere in the world and there's no criminal record to follow him. Nowhere. He could cross the border into the United States and the customs uh, officials... I think the Americans probably have got some. Well, I mean, but he could, they, he could travel there and there is no official record that follows him. Yeah, and, and the point is, and that's what was identified in a case, similar NCR case this week, uh, is that the victim's family have no idea where this guy is. What's the story? Well, it's a, uh, a guy who was also found uh, not criminally responsible. I may be mispronouncing his name, Bartosz Gajewski. And uh, he became obsessed with a uh, woman that was a realtor in Toronto. Uh, he had done some work at her home. Um, uh, he, as I say, became obsessed with her and was following her and threatening her. And he had this delusion that uh, she was in love with him. He was actually originally charged. Uh, this is back in uh, uh, mid-2000, I think. He was actually originally charged with, you know, uttering threats, her criminal harassment. The charges were uh, dropped. He was allowed to be released on a peace bond. He still stayed obsessed with her and her father. Uh, and then literally um, in uh, 2009, he attempted to abduct her out of her car, dragged her down sort of the driveway, and uh, was you know yelling and screaming that he would do justice to her. And when the police went, they found in his uh, apartment that he had you know uh, the duct tape and handcuffs and everything else like that. So he was found not criminally responsible with respect to the crimes he was charged with, um, and he was uh, ordered uh, detained. But over the course of years. Of course, as so often happens, those conditions are released. And most recently it came into the news because he still maintains the same beliefs about this woman and her father, okay, which is beyond frightening. Uh, and um, notwithstanding that, though, he is detained in the hospital, but the Ontario Review Board, which is set up to consider, you know, uh, releases, had have been granting him releases from the secure hospital facility, but he had to be with his parents. Then it turns out his parents have are gone for a while, and they're going to be in Poland, but they want to continue releasing him. And the woman, who is the, you know, this guy's target, has said, you know, well, I, why are you doing this? You have legal authority to keep him in custody. If you felt it was necessary that, you know, he have to have the supervision of his parents, why would you continue to release him? And, Roy, they won't even give her the advance notice of when exactly it is he's being released. After what he did to her. Unbelievable. And I'm just but reading, I'm just reading. And there's, it appears as though there's uh, ongoing sort of uh, uh, discussions about this. But it's a reflection, I think, you and I have talked about this before. It's the system's sort of interpretation of the individual because they were found, uh, they were not found guilty. Therefore, you know, um, they shouldn't be viewed as being a public safety risk. It's as though we forget what it is that they actually did, and that is very dangerous. You know, I'm reading a line here about this guy. A number of cases have demonstrated. Yeah. Reading a line here about this guy, delusional stalker, Bartosz Gajewski, or I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, will only get, only get four hours of unsupervised releases a week. 
while his family is in Poland. I'm sure when his victim reads that, she'll be she'll be so comforted by the fact yeah. he's only only getting four hours a week. Yeah. To what he did to her. But, you know, Carol Dedelli, who fought so yeah. hard for her son Tim's memory and to protect others from from Vincent Lee directly, she was the one who was then vilified as being the problem. Well, in the, in the case that we just mentioned, the, um, the victim was chastised by the Ontario Review Board because in her victim impact statement, she actually expressed her concerns about her safety, and she was lectured that uh, that's not what a victim impact statement's supposed to be. It's about the impact of the activities on you, not your future concerns, which is nonsense. The, the whole point about it, a victim impact statement, if you're talking about traumatization, the ongoing fear is part of that traumatization. So, again, that undermines the uh, the confidence. And these are not the only cases. Remember the, the guy... Uh, Ayanli Hassan Ali, the uh, the guy who attacked the soldiers in Toronto at the recruitment center and yes. screaming, um, you know, Allah Akbar, and he was acting uh, because the Canadians were overseas uh, fighting uh, Muslims, and he was also found not criminally responsible. And the board is, uh, you know, well, we think we should. Uh, yeah, and again, even though he maintains the, uh, the court, I saw he still poses a significant threat to the safety of the public hold some of the same delusions he experienced at the time of the attack, they want to let him go from the hospital and just go to the college across the street without any conditions on him. You know, there's one other case where they got it right, or at least one one court got it right in Quebec. Remember that cardiologist? I'm trying to think of his, his, yeah, his I, name I, he now. Killed his, he uh, killed his two children. His kids, yeah. And he stabbed them to death multiples of times, and it was to get back at his wife. And that was the, 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 the position put forward. But then the courts decided that he was not criminally responsible. So we got the proverbial, you know, we'll put you in a confined hospital surrounding for a period of time. And then they were going to release him. He was going to get the okay to get out. And then so prosecution, uh, the, the prosecutors decided they would appeal this. And a Quebec judge said, nope, you're not going to be released. Plus... We're going to charge you with second-degree murder. Yeah, they overturned the NCR. That's right, and he was convicted of murder. Yeah. But they were going to let him out. They were going to let him go, and he said what he wanted to do was get married and and have more children and and go back into medical practice. And again, there's a demonstration in this case, as in in other cases, that, you know, they're not using, it doesn't doesn't appear that they use all the tools in the toolbox they have, like notifying the victims as to, you know, when the individual... Why would you notify the victim? If he's got, if he's driving what the driving, uh, uh, the license plate number of the vehicle is, they don't, they're not using electronic monitoring on these guys. So, like, it it is a, and you've experienced as well in speaking with the victims, it's incredible frustration and, frankly, re-victimization when the system itself is seen as failing the people who've done nothing wrong and have ended up as victims. Scott, I've been uh, periodically in touch with a family that was victimized. Uh, very severely, and you know the case. I'm not going to mention them by name. Uh, but even now, years and years later, they won't let me know where they live. Yeah. They're so concerned that the killer involved in the case, who was convicted of first-degree murder, uh, will get out or uh, you know may get out. They're so concerned that even years later, we communicate occasionally by email. I have no idea where they live. Yeah. They won't tell me. They're so concerned. They won't tell anybody. Watch the story about the long-term offender case where the halfway houses in Canada 
basically said, no thanks. Yeah, that was also a uh, story uh, that uh, was uh, in the uh, the news this week, and I get the sense from reading it that the details got leaked. Um, you'll you'll remember this because the uh, the law in question that creates this special status came out of the uh, the Joe Fredericks case, the guy, the career criminal that abducted, raped, and murdered Christopher Stevenson. Twelve years old. It was the inquest in Ontario, yeah. and there were special. Uh, recommendations that was made. I was involved at the time with the Canadian Police Association, and we changed, in effect, a whole lot of laws to deal with these kind of uh, the worst of the worst of the worst offenders, because the one-size-fit-all uh, approach just does not work, and you need specialized tools. And so one of them was to actually increase the effectiveness of what are known as dangerous offenders that you know, the, uh, you'll see in the newspapers it'll say, oh, you know, yeah, the guy got a dangerous offender designation. He's serving an indefinite sentence. Well, that's sort of true, but, you know, this is Canada. Guess what? That means he's eligible for, to apply for parole after seven years. Uh, but at the same time, we also work to get created something called a long-term offender designation, which um, I, I recall having discussions actually with American prosecutors about some of the things they were doing. And the idea was that if, even if somebody didn't necessarily meet that high standard of dangerous offender, but they were still people, usually repeat offenders, um, who you didn't want to just treat the same way. And so Alan Rock was a minister of uh, justice, and Herb Gray was a solicitor general. I worked very closely with them. Uh, over the objections of, of many of their officials, we got legislation changed so that if you were deemed to be somebody that was this high risk to reoffend. Um, and that um, at the same time you needed, uh, you didn't necessarily needed to be locked up forever, but you needed to have conditions placed on you. Then what happened was it was a uh, specialized sentence that there was a fixed sentence uh, that uh, the court would impose that you could be released on early, but you could also be held to the end of your sentence. But if that was the case, you could still be under supervision for up to 10 years. And that's what, and they were known as long-term offenders. Okay, and it's been used on occasion. The the guy out in uh, British Columbia, Columbia, Randall Hopley's case we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. He is somebody that was uh, designated that. So when this case came out it, uh, this week, it was revealed there's a guy named Chris Watts who is a career criminal, convicted sex offender, uh, assessed psychopath, convicted of manslaughter as well too with sexual offenses, just constantly. Uh, you know when he was released. Uh, uh, committing crimes, and he is somebody that was kept for his full sentence, which is appropriate, but it turns out that the revelation is that um, he had reached the point where he had to be released, and okay, that's the law. This guy was so dangerous that none of the community facilities, in other words, run by private organizations, would agree to accept him, and Correctional Service of Canada came up with one um, Correctional Service of Canada community facility in Nova Scotia that would agree to accept him, and so he was sent there. So he was sent and right, he was sent the way, right across the country. He's also got uh, release conditions where he's allowed to be released without supervision, without escort, without electronic monitoring uh, into the community. And the local cops have issued a, uh, have warnings about him as well, too. And it's a, it, once again, it's an insight into the way the system isn't working because Roy, this guy, according to the uh, the reporting, this guy has been released six previous times on these long-term offender releases and violated the conditions. 
Six okay? times. And so it's, it's stated that, oh, yeah, well, he's been brought back and you can bring him back for uh, uh, 90 days. And when I saw that, I went, wait a minute, that's not the way that we did it. And I went and tracked it down and checked. And, in fact, the amendments that, you know, we worked so hard to get done, it's a crime to breach the conditions of your early release, and you could be sent to jail for up to 10 years. Not Why in 90 hell is not being done? And what, what gets me is he's shipped across from British Columbia to Nova Scotia because none of the facilities that are there to do exactly what Correctional Service Canada wanted to done with him, halfway houses, would accept him because they said he was too dangerous. But CSC still let him out. Yeah, and the there's also a revelation, and I hope I've actually forwarded all this uh, material to uh, some uh, some MPs right. that I know. I hope there's some questions asked okay. of the uh, the uh, current federal government because it, it turns out that over uh, the last over a five year period, yeah. Correctional Service of Canada is reporting that of these people who were released, uh, a total of 874 of them committed new crimes. Scott, I gotta go. Scary numbers. Thanks for sharing everything with okay. us. Okay, bye, Scott Newark, former prosecutor in Alberta. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.